We're in Ephesians 4. It's been I just every week am blown away by how deep and rich this letter is to the church and and just feel that we are only scratching the surface of this letter and, and could really just go straight back into it once we're finished and, and preach through it again and get more and more truth from it. So let me pray for us. Actually, let me read first and then, and then I'll pray for us. So Ephesians 4, we're reading from 7 uh, to 16. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the, the, the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the structure of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we are so thankful for you that you have given us all that we need for life and godliness. We thank you that you have given us salvation through the death of Christ and the resurrection, through the atoning sacrifice and the conquering of sin and death. We thank you that you didn't stop there, but you have thoroughly equipped us, each of us, and given us gifts in a way that serves not ourselves but one another for the building up of the body, for the unity of the body, the unity in faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. Lord, we long to be a healthy, mature church that is set upon your word and unshaken when people come in with crafty arguments. When the world is saying one thing, but your word is clearly stating the other. Lord, would we be set upon the solid foundation of your word, upon those who have been before us, those in leadership positions, those who were prophets and apostles and who penned down your word, those who were inspired by the Holy Spirit? Would we hold to the truth that has been taught for centuries? Would we remember the creeds that have been spoken decades? after decade and century after century. Lord, we know 
that our church is as vulnerable as any other church. And if we become puffed up, self-centered, self-focused, if we become prideful, we will empty the word of its truth and this church will no longer exist for your glory. So, Lord, let us be humble. Humble in our attitude towards your word and mature in the way we stand upon it. God, I pray that your spirit would be with us, ministering to us, and your name would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. We're in the part of Ephesians where it's starting to talk about the duty of the church or the duty of the Christian. Uh, Paul is specifically and regularly talking about our collective status rather than our individual status as Christian. He's talking about us as a church, one body, one nation. And, of course, the first duty that he has put upon the Christians, upon the church, is unity. Of course, he is feeding off Jesus and knowing that Jesus prayed this prayer in John 17, which we looked at last week, that we would be perfectly one as he and the Father are one. We know the heart of Jesus. We don't need to ask what his greatest desire is. And his desire is for the church to be bound together. And we know that churches, great many churches, have fallen apart from the inside, as we looked at last week. We know that this takes place from a disconnection. And now we didn't probably put as much weight on it last week, but this week we will. That the, the major reason for that, we said last week, was because we lose focus of our purpose. The reason we lose focus of our purpose is because we replace the word of God with something else. Now, some of these churches still preach from the Bible. Some of these churches still run Bible studies with the Bible, but rather than teaching what the Bible says, they use the Bible as a reference point. They take their ideas and they back it up with Scripture rather than having a passage and trying to unpack exactly what that passage is. You can come up with whatever opinion you want and try and justify that from scripture by taking sentence from here and there until you feel like the Bible says what you want it to say. This is what happened and it was the need for the Reformation in the 1500s when the Catholic Church had taken the scriptures and made it about works and earning our way to a position of uh, salvation and even not even getting there to a point of death and being in a place of purgatory, all of which is not in the scriptures and is made up and we see that God brought a man, Martin Luther, to come back to the foundation of the faith. And his solid foundation was Scripture alone. Scripture alone. That was our uh, the mantra of what he was talking about. What do the Scriptures say? Just as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, this is the gospel. This is what I taught to you of first importance according to the Scripture. See, even Paul himself, an apostle, does not claim that his words are his own, but rather that they are from someone higher, his God, his Saviour, Christ. So this is our absolute highest importance, that we would have the word of God as our ultimate authority. The preacher should elevate the scriptures. The preacher should unpack the scriptures. It's not about their opinion, but rather about what the word is actually saying. So we don't miss the point of this passage. So we don't uh, 
get distracted by the many things that are here and there. There's quite a lot of depth to this scripture and probably could be broken down into many uh, sections. I want to focus just quickly on verse 13 as sort of the overall emphasis of what Paul is desiring for the church and really what the Holy Spirit is desiring for the church since Paul's word, words are inspired. So verse 13 tells us that what we are aiming for and the reason Christ has given gifts to the to the leaders, uh, to all the members of the church and he's given uh, special gifts to leaders in the church is for this very reason, verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And that is a long, intense sentence with so much going on. But what we see, these certain words that point out, unity of faith, that we agree about where our faith comes from, how it comes to us, and where what our faith is in. We need to agree on those good foundations to the knowledge of the Son of God. What do we believe about God and his Son and the fullness of who he is? And then, of course, he makes these statements, and we will unpack them later. But this is the aim and the place we want to remain. We should always be striving as if we aren't there yet. I love in uh, one, uh, two, sorry, I'm going to get along, Thessalonians 2.8. He says to the church, I want you to love more and more. But before he says that, he says to them, I know that you already love one another, but I want to encourage you to do that so more and more. See, Paul is not saying you've made it, church. You are so good at loving that you have made it to the end. He says, you're good at this. I want to commend you for it, but I want to encourage you all the more to love more and more. And this is really what we're saying today. We we may feel like we've got some good unity going. We may feel like we've got some good connections there, but we can do more. We can be a greater, we can have greater knowledge, greater unity of the faith, a greater understanding of what we're doing. We could be uh, doing a, 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 having a greater sense of a, a stronger foundation upon the word. So no matter where we get to in our church, no matter how long we've been going for, this is still relevant. Strive all the more to attain unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. Strive all the more. Work all the more to make this happen in the church. And, yes, we're speaking about works. Works are a part of the Christian faith. James says it. Faith without works is dead. There is an element of works. The works do not save us. The works are an outcome of our salvation. Because we have a new life, we want to live this way. So let's go back to verse 7 and start unpacking this. The grace was, the grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, we all know that our faith is by grace and grace alone, that Jesus Christ did all the work possible to bring us into salvation, that our faith is not our own, our, our good merits, our good deeds are not our own. It was all given to us by Christ. The Spirit welled up in us, caused us to repent, gave us a faith in Jesus, and he is the reason we are being sanctified today. Now, naturally, when we see the word grace, we think of 
the cross and the freedom that it brings us through Christ. And that is an incredible thing to think about, the redemptive work of Jesus. But in this spot, this word grace is referring not to the gift of salvation, but to the gifts that take place in our life after. The gifts for the work of ministry. The gifts to enable us to do the very thing that God wants us to do. And this is where we come to understand that difference between earning our salvation through works or working from our salvation, working because we have a new salvation in Christ. The reason that changes it is because it's not us who does it. We're not gritting our teeth going, oh, I have to do this. I'm trying to trying to forgive this person. I'm trying to serve this person. I'm trying to be humble. I'm trying to be a leader. I'm trying to be generous. But rather, the Holy Spirit is filling us with these gifts to empower us and enable us to do uh, things we didn't used to do, to live a way we didn't used to live. And what we see here is Paul is saying that we have been gifted, each one of us have been gifted by God's grace. So all of us, you, me, the whole church has a range of gifts that look different to one another because it says according to the measure of Christ's gifts. Now, of course, there's a different, different amount of giving depending on how God wants that person to glorify him through the body of Christ. We can't say we are all gifted like the Apostle Paul. Clearly, he was gifted in an incredible way because he had a particular role and it was for the glory of Christ. So when we say that scripture that says we have no one, nothing to boast in but Christ alone, Christ is who we boast in, it's the same with our actions and our deeds. Whether you are the preacher at the pulpit or the encourager at the back of church who does things in silence, Both are incredibly beautiful gifts and both should be honoured and both are from Jesus and neither can boast except in Christ who gave it to them. Whether it's a public ministry that is obvious to the world or to the church or a private ministry that sees you going about serving people in homes and showing hospitality, both are to bring glory to God and both are worthy of praise and both are equal. It's up to Christ and his measure in which he gives gifts. Now, we often, because of our pride and sinfulness, elevate leadership roles above the rest. But a pastor and elder are just members of the body. They're just members of the body fulfilling their role in the body and shouldn't be elevated above everyone else, but rather seen as the same. And, of course, what does Jesus say? The least among you is the greatest. Desire to be the least. So even the elders uh, should desire to be the servants of all. So as we think about giftedness, we see that gifts uh, bring us to a place of being on the same platform. Although some gifts may look more glorious than others, 1 Corinthians 7, uh, sorry, 12 tells us that we should honour the lesser gifts more than the higher ones. We should praise the lesser parts of the body than the higher ones because all of it brings glory to Christ. Whether your work is seen or unseen, it brings glory to Christ. Now, a great question to ask is how do we find out our gifts? How do I know what I'm gifted in? Honestly, we just have to get out there 
and do things. We just have to get out there in the church and start serving, start getting around people and showing hospitality and being generous with our time and discipling one another, teaching the word one-to-one, teaching on the street, evangelising. And as we do these things, we will start to see that we naturally gravitate to certain ones than others. And we are naturally maybe better at certain ones than others. Now, to clarify, that doesn't mean you only do what you're gifted in. You do all things. Uh, I think Romans 12 is the clearest passage on this, but to summarise it, it's all serve, but some are gifted at service. All people, all Christians should be generous, but some are gifted, gen- uh, some are gifted at generosity. All Christians should evangelise, but some are gifted as evangelists. Now, this is the important part of our gifting. So we get out there and we're doing the things that we see Christ doing. We're proclaiming the gospel. We're serving the lost. We're serving the least and the, the lowly. We're being generous. We're, uh, we're, we're encouraging one another. And as we do that, we'll start to see, wow, this person really is an incredible encourager. Every time I talk to them, they just really lift me up and I feel lifted. And encouragement is a gift from the Holy Spirit. It should not be looked down upon. It is an incredible gift from the Holy Spirit. Or maybe it's the person who's consistently just naturally good at showing hospitality. And we say, wow, they're in, they're, they are gifted at showing hospitality. They are gifted at making people feel welcome. But we are all called to do that. So I encourage you as a member of the body, know that you are gifted and you'll see why you are gifted as we unpack the rest of this passage and start getting into things that you may not naturally want to do and you may surprise yourself and see that you're gifted in a way that you did not know. Verse 8 to 10 is an interesting section where Paul sort of goes from talking about gifts jumps to where those gifts come from and the power in which it comes from and then goes straight back to gifting and the, the, the reason we have the gifting. So let me read verse 8 to 10. Quoting from uh, Psalm 63. Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. So Paul is now bringing us back to this Jesus Christ, the, the gifts where the gifts come from Jesus Christ, the one who ascended and, and brought gifts to men. So the image that we're getting from this psalm is not a direct prophecy about Jesus, but rather an analogy. What happened was there was a war that was going on and Israel went up and conquered and they brought treasures back from that place. And Paul is saying, just as they went and conquered and brought gifts back, so Jesus has conquered, he's ascended, he's gone to the Father and has brought gifts back to his church, to his people. Now, he then goes on to speak in depth about the doctrine of the incarnation. Jesus, if he ascended, he must have also descended because no one can go and be in the presence of God unless that's where he was to begin. So Jesus was dwelling with God. He is the eternal son and he incarnates. He becomes flesh, descends to the earth, lives among us, 
fulfills the uh, salvation that he needs to fulfill, dies on the cross, raises to life, and ascends to the power. If you were here at Easter, I mean, spoke on Easter Sunday of exalting the resurrected king, and we had the image of Jesus on the throne with power and an iron scepter. He's no longer uh, this Jesus of human weakness, but a, a Jesus of divine power and full uh, in his fullness of authority. This is the image Paul wants to give us in saying, church, you have been gifted from the most high, from the one who came from heaven and went back to heaven. You've been gifted with the all-sufficient son, by the all-sufficient son. It's an encouragement to us to read this and go, wow, this is where our gifts come from. They're not earthly gifts that we can trade and, and get rid of, but these are spiritual gifts that are deep down within us and so generously given from the God who sits on his throne. We should have confidence. Confidence not in ourselves, of course. There's nothing to be confident in the flesh, but in Jesus, our Saviour, confident that we can be thoroughly equipped for the work that he has for us. We don't need to stress out about discipleship or evangelism or serving or showing hospitality or encouraging or teaching or whatever it may be. We need to trust. Trust in the one who is all-sufficient. Trust in the one who has all power. Trust in the one who gives generously. And Paul points us to this one. Remember who he is. Remember who you are in. Remember where your gifts come from. So he anchors us. He's been gracious, generous in giving us good gifts. He anchors us in Jesus and he goes on now to speak more about gifting and why we have this gifting and what we do with it. Verse 11. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. So he goes into talking about the leadership structure of the church, the earthly leadership structure of the church. And he states that we have human leaders, and, and we know we need human leaders. Humans are wayward people, and we will, we will if we don't have good leadership, follow all sorts of uh, paths. If, if you want a, a proof, just read the book of Judges. It's my favourite book to go to and point people to what it looks like for humans to live out of their own desires of their heart, following what their eyes see, and not having any leadership to guide and follow them. So we have human leadership in the church that God has placed there under the authority of Christ and his word, under the authority of Christ and his word, and that is the way it should always be. Now, submission, we don't like in our modern age. Submission makes us feel like there is a hierarchy and someone lower, but that is not true. We don't believe uh, that submission means that. In fact, we believe that there can be equality and submission. Christ demonstrates this perfectly in the fact that he is both God and equal to the Father, but submits as he walks on earth, even to the point of death, death on a cross. We see that in Philippians. Christ demonstrates perfect submission, even though he is equal. And we can practice submission 
And the reason we practice submission is because submission is an act of trusting someone. And the reason we can trust someone is because we know they have our best interest at heart. See, submission is not blind trust. We don't just trust anyone. But submission is knowing they have our best interests at heart. The reason we trust God is we know his character. The reason a wife should be able to submit to a husband is because they know his character and he cares for them. Now, of course, when we are hurt by leadership and someone abuses their leadership, that makes it harder to trust. It makes it harder to put, uh, uh, to be under submission or to submit again. But in that place, we need to come back to Christ and God and understand his character and his fullness and realise that we can trust God and we can find a way to be in submission again. Submission is a good and healthy characteristic of the Christian faith. And when done properly, it's a beautiful image of both headship and submission, which, of course, we'll look at later on in Ephesians as well. So we've got leadership and submission. And the leaders, the, the leadership structure that we could, we could see here, these five uh, roles to play, we could divide into two groups. Two groups of those that are still here today and those that have been fulfilled and ceased. Now, the first group is the apostles and the prophets. Now, to clarify, to start us off, apostles is an obvious one that has ceased. We know that in the scriptures, the role of the apostle was an eyewitness of Jesus. There was 13 of them. We've got the 12 disciples. Judas gets kicked out. Matthias gets elevated. And then, of course, Paul gets untimely chosen, as he words it, uh, in, in Damascus where he sees the resurrected Jesus and is sent to the Gentiles. And to be an apostle, it meant you were a sent one and an eyewitness of the resurrected Jesus. And they were sent to establish the church around the world. Now, you see the apostles were in Jerusalem and persecution broke out and they scattered all around the known world to establish churches and to preach the gospel. Now, often the apostles didn't stay places long. Paul rarely stayed anywhere long, maybe two, three years at the most until he was uh, locked up in Rome. And the apostles' job was to establish the church and then appoint elders to rule over that church. Now, often in Scripture we see uh, that they would refer to those that were establishing a church in a particular area as the prophet of the time. Now, we see this in Acts 13.1 where Paul is in Antioch and a few of the men are praying and they are referred to as the prophets. They were in one specific area. So the difference between the apostle and the prophet of this time was the apostle often came in, ministered and left and the, apostle, the prophet stayed and ministered for longer by the teaching of the word. Now, the reason we would believe that, and this is up for debate and you can come and chat more about it. The reason we believe that the apostle definitely ceased is they never hand that title on. We never see Paul or any of the apostles say, okay, now Judas, bad choice of name, uh, but you are now the apostle. Or uh, Timothy, you're now the apostle. Or Titus, you're now the apostle. We don't see that happen. In fact, they call them elders. And we see in Acts 14, 23, Paul and Barnabas go around to all the churches and establish elders. 
in those places. We see that encouragement in Timothy and Titus to establish elders over the church. Never do we see the reference established apostles. So the apostles were for a time period to establish the church around an area, scattering place to place, and the prophets were ones who were established there. Now, this is the one where people would disagree. From what we read in Scripture, this role is never passed on as well. We see that profit is never given. We see that people may be gifted with prophecy and have times where they share a, a, a revelation of Scripture to someone at a timely moment, but we do not see someone known as a prophet in the early church uh, after the apostles left. So from what I understand and have read in Scripture, I would not refer to someone as a prophet today. I would not say this is the prophet of our church. I believe that what we see the apostles do in the Scriptures, and like I said, study it yourself, unpack this if you like, um, is what we see the apostles do is they go about and they appoint elders over their church. And the elders continue to follow under the teaching of the apostles, of course, under the teaching of the word, under the headship of Christ. They are little shepherds, and that's where we get this next group of leaders, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. Let me start with shepherds and teachers. So we see that the apostles and the prophets now establish shepherds and teachers over the local churches, and they are to submit to the teaching of the uh, apostles, which is the word of God, the inspired word of God, the ones that we have written down, and under the headship of Christ. So Christ is the great shepherd. And elders, which is the same word as shepherds or pastors, that word could be is in the scriptures translated in, the, in those three different ways, elder, pastor, shepherd, interchangeable word in the scripture. The shepherd is there to care for the flock, gently correcting, equipping, we'll see that that goes on, equipping them for the work of ministry, training them for the work of ministry, and keeping watch over us. That means, that means protecting them from wolves, false teachers, or from false converts. Now this word, these N words, shepherds and teachers, is actually one word in the original text. So a shepherd should also be a teacher, and a teacher should be a shepherd. And what we see in our day and age is we have people that claim to be pulpit ministers. In other words, they stand at the front and they teach, and they teach bold messages, but they have very little time for the flock, for people. They have very little time to be with people. Well, these words are one. And we see in Timothy and Titus letters to young shepherds or pastors or elders saying to them all about teach, 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 but also shepherd and get alongside the widows and get alongside the older people, the younger people and quit. So the pastor who teaches from the front should also be connected to the people. Great saying I heard once is the shepherd should smell like the sheep. And that is the same. We should look like, we should smell like the sheep. We should know our people. We should know our people. Evangelists. This is the word where I think we have let go of. We almost put this in the category of the apostles and the prophets as if, as if this has ceased as well, but there are no more evangelists anymore. But there is a gifted person who has the skills to preach the gospel with power and see people come to faith. Not only that, they are there to equip the saints to do the same, to preach the gospel, 
So an evangelist is someone who knows how to get alongside someone in the body and train them to preach the gospel and equip them to proclaim the gospel to the lost and broken people. Church, where are the evangelists? Where are the evangelists gone? We see pastors, we see teachers, but where are the evangelists? My concern is that for so long the model of evangelism has been for us to encourage the congregation to go and invite people to church so the pastor can preach them, and we have lost the equipping of evangelists. In a great many churches around Australia today, I believe in the congregation are gifted men and women who are gifted to be evangelists and are not being used. They're being told to invite people to church. They're not being trained and equipped for the work of evangelism. They're not being uh, told how do we understand the gospel in a way to articulate it to someone who's never heard it. They don't have to convert someone. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. All they need to do is preach, and we need to train people in that. So, guys, I pray. I pray deeply for our church that we will find out who among us are the evangelists that God will reveal that to us, that we will get alongside them and train them and see them train more of us so that we can be thoroughly equipped for the work of ministry, which is what verse 12 tells us these leadership roles are for. So important, so important that we understand that the pastor, shepherd, teacher and evangelist are not there to do all the work. In fact, their work is to equip the church. In some ways, we could say that that their work is not actually to do evangelism and all all the other things that we see a pastor do, but rather to equip the church, the people inside. Now, of course, that's not the only thing. They are meant to do both. They are meant to do both. So the evangelist goes out and evangelizes, but he shouldn't just evangelize. He should be taking the body with him and equipping them. The pastor shouldn't just be teaching from the front how to disciple or how to serve, but should be taking them with them and showing them this is how you serve, this is how you do this, this is how someone changes in the gospel. To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body, the role of these gifted men in this leadership structure of the church is to equip, to equip the body, to make, make it so that you can do the work. So that you know how to do these things. So how does the body get built? Building up the body of Christ. How does the body get built? Two things that all Christians should know how to engage in. uh, Discipleship and evangelism. This is how the body is built up. Discipleship, simply meaning becoming like Christ or growing in the knowledge of Christ so that we become like Christ. And evangelism, making Christ known. These words should be the very culture of our church, that through worshipping God, as we worship God, we are becoming like Christ and making Christ known. So this is what we want to make sure that we are being faithful in our role as pastor and elder to equip the church, to help you understand that you are gifted Gifted from the one who descended and ascended. Gifted from the one who sits on his throne. You are so gifted that you can do this work and you will do it differently to the way I will do it and we need that. 
You'll do it differently to the way your, your brother or sister or your wife or your friend in the church will do it, and, you, 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 and we need that for, for the church. Your gifting will complement the gifting of your brother and sister. I always say, or I heard this said, I can't remember what I heard, but if you have the Word of God and the Holy Spirit, you have all you need. If you have the Word of God and the Holy Spirit, you have all you need. The art of it then is just practice. Practice with people in discipleship. Practice with people in evangelism. And I believe from what we see in this passage, that is a lifelong practice. We, do, we never get to the point where we are experts and that is one of the major problems. What we have done to shepherds and teachers and evangelists is we make them experts and we elevate them to a platform and we run conferences that are surrounded by them and they are the ones who say, this is how I do it and you should do it like me. That is not what we see in the scripture. We say, this is how I do it because this is how I am gifted. Now you come along and show me how you would do this with your gifting. And that is how we see the body grow and increase in number and in maturity. Now this is heavily about the maturity of the church because we go on to that verse 13. So we're looking heavily about discipleship, growing in the knowledge of Christ so that we may become like Christ. Until we all, so verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. If we lose our faith in the gospel, if we lose our faith in the gospel, we lose unity. And there's a great problem in the church today that although often the gospel is preached, we have a misunderstanding of the gospel. And the reason that plays out and how that looks is because churches are very rarely a place people want to show who they really are. And when I say church, I'm not talking about a building. We're always talking about the people. So when we're gathered, whether it's in Hanover Hall or in our homes, and we bring in a non-believer or we bring in a new believer or just a believer who is struggling with sin, they feel like they can't be themselves because everyone looks like they've got their life together. And that is a misunderstanding of the gospel. So to have unity, to attain unity of the faith means we know the gospel. We understand the gospel. And the gospel tells us that we are flat out, broken, messed up, whacked. Our heart is absolutely evil and our thoughts are depraved. And it's only through the grace of Jesus Christ who died for us in our place and the power of the Holy Spirit that made us see that, that we have any hope. And if that is the message we hold to, if that's what the faith that we bind ourselves to, it tells us that no matter what we confess, there is grace and there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is what it means to have a unity of the faith. Unity in the faith means we know the gospel so that we can have mess among us. We're not trying to disguise it like Christians are good people. In fact, Christians know they're not good people and their goodness comes from Jesus. Their righteousness comes from Jesus. It's not in them. It's from Jesus. 
So why is the church a place where people feel uncomfortable to be and call them hypocrites? Because we've lost the unity of the faith. I'm not speaking directly about our church. As I said, we can always grow in this. And I think our church does a really good job of making people feel welcome, but we can always do better. We can always do better. The second point, unity of the faith, so having a good foundation in the gospel, which makes us know that we are weak so we can be honest with one another and get alongside each other. The second one is knowledge of the Son of God. This is why it is so important that we believe in Scripture alone so that we hold to what the Bible teaches. If we go to Timothy 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus, the counsel Paul, the apostle, gives to these young shepherds, pastors, is that they should teach sound doctrine, read the scriptures aloud over and over again, be aware of false wolves, uh, false teachers, wolves in the church, be aware of the very fact that people are looking for teachers to itch their ear, to Timothy 4. Like people in the church are looking for teachers who will affirm their sin. So over and over again, Paul is warning, saying, teach sound doctrine, be faithful to the word. And what do we see in churches today? The the word is a reference point. Just preaching a message and then going, oh, yeah, and it says this somewhere here in this passage. Rather than unpacking exactly what the scriptures say and diving into these doctrines, These words, justification, sanctification, propitiation, predestination, are words that are in the Bible. And we should know what they mean. A great many Christians do not know what these words mean. And they have an insufficient understanding of the Scriptures. They're in our Scripture. And if if your translation has changed those words, you probably should change translation. Because these are words that hold deep meaning and propitiation cannot be translated in in a different way. And predestination is an essential part of understanding the depth of who Christ is. And, of course, without justification and sanctification, we don't understand the gospel. So we have unity through faith, knowing the gospel so that we can have authentic relationships. We have unity by knowing the Son of God, the truth of who he is and what he has done and what he has claimed for us. Understanding doctrinal truths. And the reason is so that we can be mature. Mature. To be matured, mature manhood. And the fullness of Christ. This is an image that he gives, gives us. I want you to think for a moment. Think of a, a young boy. Think of a teenage boy, 15 or 16, and think of them growing to about 25. I believe that you see a teenager change, you see a teenager change, of course, from like 12 to, to 14, 15. And then there's this other change that takes place in young boys from 20 to 25 or 18 to 25, and they fill out in the shoulders and they they start to become a man. There's a significant difference between a boy and a man. Now, it's hard to grasp an image of what a man looks like today because there's only boys in men's bodies in this world. 
What it means to be a man and what the scriptures teach that it means to be a man is that we men take responsibility. Now, this is the only time we see in scripture that the church is referred to as a man. It's always a bride. That is what she is. But he's giving us an image here, an analogy for us to grab hold of, of a man who is taking responsibility. He's matured. He's put away childish behaviour and he's walking in responsibility. That means if his family is broke, he works more and provides for them. If his family is suffering, he takes up the mantelpiece and helps and carries the burden of the suffering. This is the image of the church that he wants us, not multiple people running around headless, like headless chickens trying to do their own thing, but coming together as one mature body who is responsible, responsible for the outcome of that church. I'm not the only one responsible for the outcome of gospel church, or us elders aren't the only ones responsible, but we are altogether responsible for the outcome of this church. What happens for us is about all of us, all of us coming together and taking responsibility. That means when hardship comes, suffering in our church comes, we all get in there and take responsibility as a mature man. When false teaching comes, we get in there and and take responsibility and rebuke and correct. When conflict arises, which it should, we're sinners, remember, and conflict just brings grace into our relationships and strengthens them as we work through them. When conflict is there, we take responsibility. Conflict is probably there all the time in the church. If we really know each other, we're going to offend one another. And, And rather than leaving it and ignoring it, and like we talked last week, brushing it under the rug, we confront it and deal with it. That is what it means to be mature, for the church to be a mature man. We've taken responsibility for the church and its unity and its duty. We take responsibility for the new believer that comes to faith, correcting them and encouraging them. And we take responsibility for the preaching of the gospel to the lost. We see the need for that. Mature manhood and the fullness of Christ, the stature of the fullness of Christ. That means we're living like Christ. Can we get a better example of mature manhood than Christ? The one who took responsibility for the whole world's sin, who who wore the weight of their sin. To walk in the fullness of Christ or the church to be in the fullness of Christ is to be imitating him. Be imitating him. Verse 14. So that we are no longer children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. A mature man is one who is strong in conviction. A mature man knows what he believes and he will gently and clearly help others understand his point. That is the church. That is what we should be. We don't want to be children. Now we've got this image of a child. A child is so sporadic. They are interested in things for a moment and then get bored and and move on to the next thing. Whether it's a toy, whether it's uh, their latest idea of a job they want to be when they're older, whatever it is, they're moldable and unstable. He's saying, no, we're going to be men, mature men in the fullness of Christ, imitating Christ. We're certain of what we believe. We hold to what we believe. It's in the scriptures so that we're not tossed to and fro. 
so that we're not thrown around by winds of doctrine. There is a great number of false teachers out there. If you type in Christian preacher or just Christianity into YouTube, you're more likely to get a false teacher than a faithful teacher to the Word. 100% you're more likely. If you turn on the TV, you're more likely to find false teachers teaching on TV than faithful teachers. That is the case in our world today. We know they were going to come in. Jesus warned of it. Paul warns of it. It's what he's afraid of for the Ephesian church when he says goodbye to them in Acts 20. False teachers will come in and they will deceive us. And you won't know it. This is, this is really important. Verse 14, by cunning, human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes, they will look like they are faithful to the word. And a great majority of them do. And I could name heaps of them, but I don't want to slander them, who are on TV today, who, are on, uh, who have got big churches, thousands and thousands of people, who are deceiving people with their craftiness. Deceiving people with their craftiness. We may find that someone will sneak into our midst, maybe praying against it and praying that this will not happen. Maybe they will sneak into a leadership position and they will be deceitful. That is the danger. They are sneaky. It says they are wolves in sheep's clothing. Paul says in Galatians, that even if a man or an angel of light speaks to you a gospel other than the one I have spoken to you, do not listen to them. An angel of light, that deceitful, that deceptive, that they may even make us think that it's a spiritual experience. And when it's a spiritual experience, we start to lean and go, oh, but it was, it was a, I felt something. I had that experience. And we anchor our faith no longer in the word, but on an experience. And this is one of our great problems over the last 50 years. We moved away from the word and we moved to what a we moved to a feeling-based or an experience-based theology. Study of God, that's what theology means. So everything we believe, we believe because we've experienced or we've felt something. And that's what the church has been teaching. You know this by nearly every single Christian event in the early 2000s and uh, sort of the last 20 years has been called encounter. Encounter God, encounter this, encounter, have a spiritual moment. I don't know how many events I've been to that are called encounter. If you want to encounter God, if you want to hear God speak, don't look for what your feelings are telling you. Read the word. It's obvious why God wrote his word down because our feelings and our mind cannot be trusted. We can be listening to the voice of the devil or listening to an angel disguised as an angel of life and think it's from God. Your feelings are wicked. Your thoughts are evil. And if we are going to teach a feeling-based, experience-based theology, we are in a world of mess, an absolute world of mess. We don't need to, we should not listen to our heart or listen to our thoughts, but rather preach truth to them. We need to preach truth to what every thought that comes to mind. And this morning I woke up feeling depressed, defeated, deflated. 
And I wanted to listen to those thoughts. You're unworthy. You're sinful. You're disgusting. I had to preach to them, remind myself I'm in Christ. I know I'm unworthy. It's because of grace that I'm saved, the grace alone. I don't preach in the power of my strength. I preach in the power of the Holy Spirit. We need to be thoroughly equipped to preach to ourselves. So how do we spot a false gospel, a false Jesus, a false teacher? Now, many people will go out and spend hours upon hours listening to these teachers, watching their YouTube videos, listening to their theology, understanding what they're about, and that is that is a waste of time. There are so many theories, so many ideas, so many deceitful teachings out there that you'll spend your lifetime trying to understand them all. What we need to do is study the real gospel and know the real Jesus so that we can identify the false ones. There's this great image of the Washington Bank, uh, a bank in Washington, who before they had counterfeit note scanners would send their people to the mint where the money was made. And for a week, seven full days, they would spend every single day touching and feeling every one of the notes, playing with them, uh, looking at them, knowing what the real note looked like so that when they went back to work and a counterfeit note hit their hand, they knew exactly what it felt like. They didn't need to study counterfeit notes. They came in all different shapes, sizes, smells and looks. They studied the real one and because they knew the real one, they could identify the false one. The same is true for us. We don't need to study the false teachers. We don't need to watch their videos. We don't need to listen to their theology. We study the real one, understand the real Jesus, so when the false one is presented, we'll understand. We'll see see it for itself as false. That is not just the role of leaders. It's all of our role. So if someone stood up among us, we can all say he's false. They're false. The real Jesus says this. 15, rather speaking the truth in love. This is the way we go about correcting. Of course, we spoke about this last week and we saw those characteristics, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. We are to grow up in every way into him, into him who is the head, into Christ. We're not to grow up to be like the pastor, We're not to grow up to be like one another. We should not conform to the image of the one that looks most sainty to us, but rather conform to the image of Christ. Conform to the head, Jesus. And we speak the truth in love. We bear with one another in love. That means as we walk with that new believer who has all sorts of weird and wax understanding of the gospel because they come from a different life, we slowly correct them day after day, teaching them the truth of the scripture. We bear with each other. We are gentle in correcting. Gentle in correcting. Growing up in every way. And we only grow up in every way if everyone is working together. We need each other's gifting. And he says at the end, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. See how he finishes? 
This last statement urging for us to be unified, urging us to work in our gifting, urging us to, to, uh, to be thoroughly equipped, to have all the joints working together. And we're missing out if someone's not actively involved. We're missing out if someone's just sitting on the sidelines. We're missing out when someone isn't part of the church. I want to ask you this question to finish up. How important is church to you? The body, not the building. We don't have a building anyway. The body, one another. How important are your brothers and sisters to you? If you were to write one of those lists of order of priority in your life, what would it look like? For years, all the ministry books teach this. It's God, family, church. And then work or whatever comes after that. Maybe church is even lower than than work for you. I'd like to plead with you to study the scripture. Understand this because I came to a conviction many years ago from the scriptures, from passages like Matthew 10, uh, Mark 10, that tell us that we have a family within the church, that our priority list should be God and equal church and family and then whatever else follows. Our priority list should equal God, of course, is first and foremost, but family and church on the same playing field. You will do your family injustice if you do not take them to church or if you elevate them above the church. And and when I say take them to church, I mean being a part of them. Husbands, as the leader of your family, lead your family to be connected to the body. That is the greatest gift you could give them, that they may know what it means to disciple and evangelize. Fathers, mothers, have your kids seen you disciple someone? Someone in the church, have they seen you engage with someone in suffering and pray for it? Have they seen you evangelize someone? I'm not asking and I don't believe that this looks like going to a 1,000 programs a month in the church, attending youth ministry and kids' ministry and mother's groups and all those sorts of things. They're good things. They can be great things. What it looks like is to do normal things together, to do normal things together. I don't need to be invited into your clean house. I'm happy to be in mess. The church doesn't need to see that you have all things together and they don't need to come to your house with all things cooked and prepared. Tell them to bring something. And then when they come to your house, they don't need to have everything ordered. Put them to work. Ask people in the church to iron your clothes, fold stuff, put out the washing, whatever it is. We're meant to be a family. That is the image the scripture gives us. Put people to work in your own life. Put the church to work in your own life to serve you, to be generous with time and resources for you. You know, one of the greatest joys I've had over the last couple of weeks is going to people's homes that have young babies and sitting in the living room while you guys put your child to bed. I love that. I don't need to be entertained. We don't need to be entertained at your house. I'm just happy to sit there in your home, be a part of your life as you go about your routines and when you get a bit of time to chat, cool. Next time, just put me to work, put Grace to work and and, and put whoever else to work that comes around. Families, don't 
hold back yourself from the church. Don't hold back the parenting of your children or the discipleship of your child. Let them see other people. Let them be involved in it, that we may be built up together, that we may have kids using their giftedness in the church to serve people. I encourage you, don't take my word for it. Study the scriptures. Where does church fit in your priorities? Not your priorities. Where does church fit in the priorities of Christ? Study them. Grab a concordance. Look up church. Look up family. Read the letters. See how it's placed and the emphasis that the word puts on both family and church. I don't want anyone to burn out in over-serving. I want people to call out and say, serve me, I need help, or, or, or this is a better way for me to be connected. But I want all of us to, to take on the maturity of a man and to be responsible for the equipping of the saints, to be responsible for the building up of the church, to be responsible for the unity of the faith, to be responsible for the knowledge of the Son of God so that no one slips out and says, I didn't know what the gospel meant or I didn't know this theology because we all are aware of one another. Let me pray. Father God, I just thank you for your word. I thank you that you knew the church before the foundation of the world. You knew each and every one, the individual people that would make up it. You knew their giftedness. You knew how you would give them. You knew when you would save them. You knew which part of the body would preach to a non-believer and they would become a part of the body. You still know that. And you see it in our world today. You can see it in our place, our town, our city today. God, I love that church. And I see so many beautiful, beautiful things. I love the unity we have in the faith. I love the knowledge that we hold to. I love the work that is going on in our midst. And I'm with Paul, just urge more and more that we would never stop striving, never stop working, never stop pursuing the giftedness of God's grace, not in our own strength or merit but in your power of the Holy Spirit, Lord, that we would obtain unity in faith and knowledge of the Son of God to the full measure of Christ, that we are built up to the full measure of God. Lord, keep us faithful, founded upon your word. Keep us faithful in the service of your word. Keep us moving along that narrow path to the gates of glory. And one day we'll hear your great words, well done, good and faithful servant. We love you, Lord. We praise you. We thank you that it's not our work, but your work. Let us not be covered in guilt or shame, but lifted in your grace and know that there is so much grace for us day after day. Let us be spurred on, Lord, spurred on to go forth and think, Lord, how we may be one as you are one. In Jesus' name, amen.